so I have a confession this morning. Um, I'm sure I'm the only one in this room that gets annoyed by stuff at times. I know none of you ever get annoyed by anything because you're much more spiritual and holy than I am. Um, but I was thinking about some of the things that kind of annoy me. Um, and one kind of jumped out in my mind. So I'm, I'm pretty sure this is none of you. So if it's you, I am sorry. I didn't intend to offend you in the first two minutes. That was not my goal. I actually thought through our people in our church and none of you came to my mind. So if you think it was you, it's not. Um, but, but on social media, I will accept pretty much every single friend request that's ever given to me unless it looks like it's like spam or fake, right? So I pretty much accept them all. And so usually there'll be someone who I don't really know. They're kind of on the peripheral part of my life and like we've passed at some point and maybe we have a mutual friend or something. I don't know. And, and they send me a friend request and I accept it. And then not too long after, I usually get a message from them and it goes something like this. Are you interested in a coach? And I'm like, wait, do you coach a sport that you're looking for 40-year-old guys with a bad knee? Like, I'm in. Um, and then I find out that's not what they're talking about, right? They're like, no, no, like, you know, more like life coach, fitness coach. I'm like, no, I'm not interested in any of that. It's like, thank you, but no. Um, and, and then I'll notice that they'll post lots of pictures regularly, and they're kind of like this. Like, here's what I used to look like. Here's what I look like now. It's like an infomercial, right, all the time. And they post their infomercial pictures of themselves, and then it's like, I used to eat these things, and it's like all the stuff we all love, like pizza and burgers, and, and then it's like, but now you can have this kind of pizza that tastes terrible, but, but it's so good for you. Um, right? It's like the before and after picture of everything in their life. And so, um, I, I gotta be honest with you, sometimes I'm annoyed, but here's where I've also gotta be honest. I'm kind of impressed. Like at one level, I'm annoyed because of the, the, just the volume sometimes it's posted. But I'm kind of impressed because here's what impresses me with this. Um, there's been a dramatic transformation. Like, people who know them well know, like, yeah, they, they're the same person. They look the same, like, kind of, but, like, they're the same person. Right? I mean, like, if you change your diet and exercise habits, if you begin to live into kind of a different routine, if you begin to, to read different things and invest in your life in different ways and get more sleep crazy thing happens, right? You actually get healthier and you feel better. I know, it's a crazy thing. But, but these people have done things to have led to a marked change in their life. They literally are marked differently. They're the same person, don't get me wrong. Like you can, you, you know they're them, right? If you haven't seen them in years, like we think about maybe you've gone to a high school reunion. I still haven't gone, uh, probably never will. But, but if you go to your high school reunion, you will see people that you're like, I know I know you. And you look like someone I used to know, but you don't look like someone I used to know either. And it's the same person, they just look different. Have you noticed this, that like people, people change, but they're still the same people. And I'm telling you all this not to say that I want you to join up, sign up for my like health pyramid scheme where I try to make money off you. I'm not asking you for that. This is not um, one of those things like, I don't know, there's a bunch of them out there, but you know, I'm not, I'm not doing that today. But here's my point. Those people have such a dramatic change that it's evident to others. Here's the reality if you call yourself a follower of Jesus today. We too should have such a marked change in our life that people go, huh, here's who they used to be. Here's who they are. It's the same person, but they're definitely changed. And here's the reality. What we find is this becomes the reality of what a marked life looks like, a life that has been transformed. In fact, what we find is this, that Paul writes to the church in Galatia, 
And he's trying to get them to understand there is a way you can live so differently than you used to live that you can become a different person, that what used to define you doesn't have to be what defines you in the future. And for some of us, we're like, well, yeah, I've got some stuff in my background that, like, it needs to stay there, right? Like, but it keeps creeping back in. The famous reformer Martin Luther used to talk about this, that when people become followers of Jesus, they, he, like, they get... They'd get buried in the waters of baptism, but that old Adam, he's a really good swimmer, and he just keeps coming back. You know, like, we, we know that we should look differently, but sometimes it's hard to look differently, to be a different person. And so Paul's writing to this church, and this is what we're talking about the next three weeks, this letter that Paul writes, and what does it look for us to be marked by Jesus? To live a life that is markedly different, to live as people who've been so radically transformed by the good news of Jesus. Now, Paul's writing to a particular church trying to say this, hey, um... For most of them, like you grew up and you were, you were all about the, the law and the prophets. So we'd call it the Old Testament. And you lived into that and you followed that. But what he's trying to say to them is, listen, like, I, that doesn't matter for these people anymore. So you don't have to be circumcised to become Jewish. You don't have to do these things. You can just follow the one who is the resurrected Jesus. And it's messing them up because they're like, well, I don't, do I want to live different? Do I want to be a different person? Do I, is this what I want? And so here's what Paul writes to the church. From Galatians chapter 1, the first few verses here, beginning of verse 3. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Now, Paul begins with this line that doesn't mean much to most of us, honestly. Grace and peace. Grace and peace. And peace. And, and I probably should define grace in the way that the language would have lent itself towards. And here's what it would be. Grace is undeserved generosity. Undeserved generosity. And so the mark of a Christ follower, right? This is a kind of a cool thing. Should be that we are all for other people receiving undeserved generosity. Now, here's the challenge in that. That means we should want that for someone else even if we don't receive something. Because most of us are like, I'm really good with people get, having generous things done for them as long as they're done for me too. But if you're not going to do the generous thing for me, I don't want you to do it for someone else. I don't want them to experience what I haven't experienced. But that's not at all what the followers of Jesus are marked by. We're marked by this belief and this desire that people would experience undeserved generosity is a mark by follower of Jesus. And so followers of Jesus would extend grace and peace. And I love the words of William Barclay and say, well, what's this look like in our life? I'm trying to give some, some different language that might be helpful. Here's what he wrote. May the beauty of the undeserved love of God be on you so that it will make your life lovely too. May the beauty of the undeserved love of God be on you. What if we longed not only to be defined by the undeserved love of God, but we longed for others to know the same? What if that drove the way that we lived? What if those who call themselves followers of Jesus really were marked by the characteristics and the life and the teaching of Jesus? And then maybe you didn't catch it. I don't know. It's one of the most powerful lines that Paul writes probably in all his letters. The line that he wrote and we just read just a moment ago. In fact, I'll reread it to you. And this line was this. The Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age, who gave himself to rescue us from our sins. Right? 
one of the coolest things that Jesus does is he doesn't just want to save us from our sins. Like, we, we sometimes are just like, well, just going to be forgiven, be saved from your sins. But he doesn't just want to, like, rescue us from something. He wants to rescue us toward something. It's honestly not that good of news just to be taken from out of something. Like, that's not that compelling, right? Like, cool, I, I don't have that anymore, but what, what now? But, but God so desperately loves us, the undeserved generosity of God is expressed through his son Jesus in such a way that we are rescued from our sins but set towards so we can live as if heaven is true on earth. It is literally the prayer of Jesus on earth as it is in heaven. So what then is Paul trying to say is this. You can be so rescued from the previous way of life you have known that you can live with heaven on earth. So when Paul says to rescue us from this present evil age, right? I'm not going to, this is a whole other sermon, so I'm not going to do that today because you might like lose your mind. But they used to talk about in Jewish life, there was the present age and the age to come and the middle will be the day of the Lord. And so what Paul is trying to say is this, by virtue of the coming of Jesus, you can live as if heaven is true here on earth, here and now. The present evil age does not have to be what defines you, right? You can know the goodness of God here and now in these moments, not just in a life to come, but today, not even tomorrow. Right now. You are invited to know that here and now. And so he goes on to write this in verse 11. I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that the gospel I preached is not of human origin. I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. Rather, I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my previous way of life in Judaism. How intensely I persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people and was extremely zealous for the traditions of my fathers. But when God, who set me apart from my mother's womb and called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles, my immediate response was not to consult any human being. I did not go up to Jerusalem to see those who were apostles before I was, but I went into Arabia. Later, I returned to Damascus. So Paul has this dramatic encounter with God. He encounters Jesus, right? You can read about it in Acts chapter 9. But Paul's story, right, what it, what it should remind each of us about is this. There is no thing we can do, no place we can have gone, no thing we could have experienced where the love and the grace of God cannot come to us. There is no thing in our life, no past we have carried, it is so depraved or broken or messed up that God cannot redeem. And Paul's life epitomizes this over and over again. And we'll begin to look what leads to this encounter he has. And it really kind of begins, um, we can look at tr- chapter 7 and 8 of Acts, but we're not going to. But, but it does kind of begin with a guy named Stephen and his story. Stephen became a follower of Jesus, and he spent his life serving the church. And what happened was others, because of the, the way in which they were living, and it was messing up kind of the view of what Judaism was, right? Like, do we have to follow these rules or not? What's this, what happens here? And so Stephen is committed to following Jesus, and he's brought before the officials, and he is stoned to death. By the way, if you're wondering what stoned to death means, it means they throw rocks at you until you die. That's what it means to be stoned to death. And as Stephen is being killed, right, it's one of the most powerful lines in the scripture. Stephen literally says, Father, forgive them, Right? In fact, he says, don't hold these sins against them. Crazy story. But echoes, he says, don't hold these sins against them. It echoes the words of Jesus, who, as he's dying on the cross, said, Father, forgive them. 
by the mark of a Christ follower is that when someone wants to even execute us, we'll be wanting them to receive the undeserved generosity of God. Father, forgive them. Father, don't hold their sins against them. Have you and I encountered Jesus in such a way that when we're persecuted or pushed against or someone's mean to us, right? Like truth is, no one's trying to stone you. But, but even when they're mean to us or they don't like you, are we that gracious that these are the words of Stephen become our words for us? But why do I tell Stephen's story? Because as they took stones, they took their jackets off and they sat them at the feet of a guy named Saul. We know it was Paul. In fact, here's what we find in the beginning of chapter 8, these words. And Saul approved of their killing him. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem. And all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. But Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. Now, I'm going to stop for a second because maybe you're confused. Like, who is this Paul-Saul guy? By the way, helpful thing for us. Um, Saul is the Jewish name of the Latin Roman name Paul. There you go. Paul doesn't have some dramatic name change. It's just if in the Gentile world, he would have been known as Paul. In the Jewish world, he was known as Saul. So in the scriptures, when they go back and forth, and you're like, well, yeah, but they, they quit calling him Saul, and they start calling him Paul. Yes, because he spent time with Gentiles. That became where he spent most of his life, and so he became known as Paul. There's a little helpful thing for you. So we notice that Saul or Paul, which is different, same person. Here we go. Um, Saul was raised a Jew. He was a Jew of all Jews. In fact, he was a Pharisee. And so the Pharisees were like the rule followers of the rule followers, right? They were as zealous as you could be. They followed every rule, and they had a rule for that rule so they didn't mess up the wrong rule. It's true. It's like a whole mess. But, but they did it because they wanted to, to, to be holy, to be consecrated, to be right before God, to be in right relationship with God. The problem was at some point, right, it was no longer about relationship with God and just following more and more rules, and so Paul is so committed to this that he's going to persecute the church. Here's what we find in Acts chapter 9. It says, Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. Now, maybe you didn't catch the line. But here's the line I think that's important for us to catch. It says, if he found any who were a part of the way, who belonged to the way. And so sometimes we have like this weird conception of what Christianity is or isn't, and we've had to define it and all that kind of stuff. But, but here's what the early church was persecuted for. They were persecuted for being followers of the way, the way of what? The way of Jesus. It was just they had reoriented their entire life around following the way, the life, the teachings of Jesus. And so if you're like, what does it mean to be a Christian, right? Christian wasn't even used as derogatory. It's only in the Bible three times. But followers, apprentices of Jesus is what it means to be committed to being a disciple of Jesus. And this is what Paul is persecuting because it's messing up his view of what it's supposed to be to be a person of God. He was convinced he knew the right way for people to live. He was convinced he knew the way they should follow after God. And so he was persecuting them again and again. And then he has this dramatic encounter in which he encounters Jesus in a way that is life-changing. He's on the road to Damascus, and he's literally blinded by a light, and not the Bruce Springsteen song. He's blinded by a light, 
And he hears this voice, it's Jesus who says to him, why do you persecute me? Why are you persecuting me? He's like, oh, who are you? Like, he's like, I'm Jesus. He has this dramatic encounter, and so his life, literally, there's a, a literal mark in Paul's life when he is changed, he is transformed. There is a mark that he can look back on and go, I was like this, I encountered Jesus, and I became like this. There was a definite previous way of life in his life. Paul's radical transformation was a marked difference in who he was. But here's what that models for you and I. The full acceptance of God's love leads to our transformation. Because all of a sudden, Paul is confronted with this new way of thinking and living that it's not about the rules that he follows, but it's about the relationship he enters into with God. Now, you're going to live a particular way because you've entered into a relationship with someone, and there's things you don't do in good relationships. But it's about this love that God has for him and it reorients the way he understands these things. And, and yet, Paul's transformation did actually require some work. And maybe you didn't catch this line and maybe it didn't make all sense to you, but, but I'm gonna read this verse again, which at first glance still isn't gonna make sense, but bear with me. Verse 17 says, I did not go up to Jerusalem to see those who were apostles before I was, but I went into Arabia and later I returned to Damascus. Paul left for three years and went into Arabia, also known as probably the Sinai wilderness. He went to be discipled. And maybe you're like, well, Sinai wilderness, that sounds familiar, right? Well, yeah, Sinai is the same place where God had an encounter with Moses and Elijah. So it would be fitting that Paul would go off to the place where God had encountered these same prophets before him to spend time with God. And so can you imagine if you had bought into a way of life where it was all about these rules, this, this rigid, rigid way of life, and you go off into the wilderness and God is working on your heart to transform your heart, that it might take a minute. That if you've bought into a way of life that this is how I've lived and I've been so passionate and zealous for it, but, but yet it's not the way God's calling me to live and so off I might go. And so it's no different for Paul that he goes and he begins to shift his understanding that it used to be the idea that, that we're looking for someone to fulfill the law and the prophets in a unique particular way. The problem for Paul and for many others is that God did fulfill the law and the prophets in his son Jesus. It just didn't look like anybody thought it was going to look. And so Paul goes out to the wilderness to be transformed. But here's the cool thing about what God does. Paul doesn't have to go back and be someone radically different. Do you remember who he was before? Like he was zealous. He was borderline fanatical. Did you know Paul was still those things? Go read the rest of the New Testament. Paul continued to live in that way, but his passion was just kind of twisted just a little bit differently. And, and it's a pretty significant shift, right, to go from the idea that I'm going to follow rules so I'm going to love differently. In fact, maybe I'd say it this way. Um, it's easy to follow rules and much harder to love people. I know none of you experience that. It's easier to follow rules than it is to love people. Here's what I mean. Um, I didn't steal or lie today. Check. Got that one covered. I wasn't unfaithful to my wife today. Check. Um... I didn't say God's name in vain, check. I didn't worship any idols, check. I'm doing pretty good. But, but laws are easier than love. And here's why, love cannot be completed. Love is an ongoing activity. Love doesn't stop, it doesn't cease, it doesn't end. I cannot follow a rule for a long time and not do anything good. I cannot follow rules. Have you noticed that you can follow rules and not have the right heart? Like you can even do the right thing and yet you're like pretty bitter about doing it. 
I know I'm the only one who's ever done that, but I'm sure you've experienced that as well, right? I've done the right thing and felt pretty bitter about it, but what happened if my heart would be transformed in such a way that love would be what redefines me? And the truth is, it's usually not like a big transformation that has to take place in some areas of our life. In fact, sometimes it's a subtle, subtle shift from the why we're doing what we're doing. Here's what I mean. Um, if you've spent your life trying to make lots and lots of money, cool. Keep doing it. But rather than seeing how much I can accumulate, you begin to ask the question, how much can I give? Different question. So maybe you love sports and you love athletics and you love competition. Rather than us trying to figure out how can I fuel that competitive desire within me, how can I help people recognize in this sphere that at the end of the day, this doesn't matter. That, that it's secondary to everything else. That, that following Jesus matters way more than whatever sport I'm involved in. And maybe, you know, like if you're like, ah, I can't wait to retire or I'm retired and you're just pumped about it. Um, maybe it's not how many vacations can I go on, but where can I volunteer? I know, crazy thing. Did you know retirement's not a thing in the Bible? Weird. Did you know the kingdom of God, we don't get to retire from it, we're just called to continue to serve? Till we die. I know. Some of you are bummed out now. It's good. Some of the coolest things I watch in our church as a pastor are the group of men and women who serve, like kind of right after retirement, who just serve in all kinds of projects that, that most people never even know happen. Um, at the end of the day, they save churches across the globe, millions and millions and millions of dollars in repairs and service and all kinds of things. And it's such a cool thing to witness because it's like they've recognized like, hey, I'm not done serving the kingdom of God. Like that, that's what I, I long for. Like, oh, okay, this is like, it has nothing to do with my sermon, but this is my dream, right? Um, so someday, I will probably retire from pastoring a church. Like, probably not, probably, you know, a while from now. Um, but when that day comes, my dream is whatever church I'm a part of, I want to go every Sunday morning and pray for the pastor who's there. Like, that's my dream. Weird dream, but, but I have a friend of mine who talked about, experienced that. God came every Sunday morning at 7.15 and prayed for him. So that's my dream. When I retire, I want to go every Sunday morning and pray for whoever that man or woman may be. Right? Like, that's, that's my dream. But what are we going to do with whatever we have left, right? So that's what Paul is trying to get us to understand. It doesn't take this radical shift, but just a subtle shift, right? Instead of the, the what we're doing is fine, but the, the why we're doing what we're doing does change, right? It looks the same, right? We're still working. We're not going to quit our jobs. Like, you still have to work. Um, by the way, this crazy thing happens in the Bible. Acts chapter 2, everyone sold all their, all their possessions, has everything in common, and then the rest of the New Testament, people are sending money back to Jerusalem because they all thought Jesus was coming that day. Um, so they're all broke. So they had to help each other out, right? It's crazy how that story happens. So you keep your jobs, keep working, keep investing in the kingdom of God by how you live and work and act. But what if we looked so different and yet looked so the same? But here's the other challenge. Sometimes when we've had an encounter with Jesus, we have to walk away from what we have known and we can't go back to it. We can't go back to it. Right, like I, I want to be clear. Some, one of the saddest stats I ever read is about a lot of times when people become followers of Jesus for like, in about five years, they don't have any non-Christian friends. Like we don't, we don't long for that. That's not good. In fact, that's an incredibly sad statistic. It's too often true. But what Paul models for us is this, that sometimes we have to leave a cer certain situation or, or things we've been involved in because they've been destroying us. And so Paul goes off for three years into this Arabian wilderness, right? He goes off and probably into the Sinai wilderness, and he's there. But do you notice, did you catch where he goes back to? 
he comes back to Damascus. Where was Paul on the way when he encountered Jesus? He was on the way to Damascus. So Paul, once he's discipled, it's not like he just is absent from this place forever. He goes back to the same place again. Right? And it says he, he used to be someone who was a, a Pharisee, and so he would have been a part of going to Jerusalem on a regular basis. And where does he go again? He goes back to Jerusalem. It's not like he left these people and never went back to them, but in his transformation, he knew he couldn't be around the same people in the same way, so he had to walk away from certain situations. And here's the flip side. For some of us, we may have to leave things behind because they're destroying us, and we literally can't go back to them. So here's an example. I have a couple good friends. Both were, were, were alcoholics. And they came to know Jesus, and he delivered them from their alcoholism. Uh, one of them, to this day, um, can't walk in a bar because they're like, I, I won't be able to walk out. They'll have to carry me out. I can't go there. The other one has no temptation, and it's not for them. It's like not a big deal. They can go anywhere, and, and, and they're never tempted. But one can't go back to the same place because it will destroy them. Now, we don't have to leave a relationship with people, but we might have to leave stuff behind. There are times when there are things we have been a part of that have destroyed us or our family, or we can see they're destroying our community or their friends, and we just can't go back to them because we keep finding ourselves in the same routine again and again and again. And then when people look at us, they're like, there's no previous way of life for you. You're still living the same. And that's when we, we are called hypocrites by people in the world around us. And rightfully so sometimes. But what if we walk out of that way of life into a new way of life? And this is what Paul is modeling for us, that Jesus invites us to a new way of life. In fact, Michael Gorman, scholar, he would say it this way, we live into a new way of life called the cruciform life. And here's what we define cruciform as. Cruciformity is conformity to the crucified Christ. So what am I conformed to? The crucified Jesus. Right? I mean, Jesus uses some crazy words when he teaches. He says, if you want to save your life, you lose it. What? If you lose your life for my sake, then you'll find it? He takes what's normally flips it upside down. In fact, so what's it mean to live a cruciform life? We're going to talk more about it next week a lot. But, but here's what Paul writes in Philippians chapter 2 that might be helpful for us. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interest, but each of you to the interests of the others. What Paul is saying is this, that the marks of the followers of Jesus are conformed to the image of the crucified Christ. There are things we lay down because we know they're destroying us, so we trust them at Jesus' feet, and he begins to transform us and change who we have been. And so Paul goes from the rule follower of all rule followers. And this, what I'm about to say, means nothing to most of us. Like, I get it, unless you really understand Jewish culture. This means nothing. Paul goes from being a guy who is all about the rules to going, hey, you don't need to be circumcised. It's okay. Don't worry about it. Like, you have no idea how radical that is. Like, that, that is, like, one of the craziest things for a Pharisee to say. That doesn't matter anymore. I, I don't know how to even speak it in our language. I really don't have any idea how to, how to give that such gravity that it should hold. But Paul goes from saying, like, the rules matter to, like, the love and grace of God matter even more. This is the transformation that Paul begins to make, right? It's the transformation for Paul. And then he goes on to write these words. Then I went to Syria and Cilicia. I was personally unknown to the churches of Judea that are in Christ's. 
They only heard the report. The man who formerly persecuted us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they praise God because of me. By the way, that is one of the best best lines in all the New Testament. I'm going to read it again. They had heard the report. The man who formerly persecuted us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they praised God because of me. He goes from persecutor to one of the primary initiators of a movement. He goes from persecutor to promoter. Talk about transformation, right? He was living his life trying to destroy the church and any who follow Jesus. And he has this encounter with Jesus and he is markedly changed, right? He would have looked the same, but he didn't look the same at all. So I was thinking about how there's this previous way of life for us as we follow Jesus. And just this week, I was really short with someone. Like, too short. And I knew it. And I was thoroughly convicted in the moment. And I apologized a couple times. Because then I feel bad because I knew I, 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 I shouldn't have been that short. And I was. And so I, I became so aware of it. And it bothered me for a couple days. And here's why. The more I have come to know Jesus, the more he has continued to change me. And years and years ago, I might not have even noticed that I was short. I might have just thought I said what I said was fine. But this is how God works, that we begin to be changed over time, that we go, oh, that's not who I want to be. And, and here's one of the crazy things about the grace and work of God have a spirit in our life. I'm so much better than I ever used to be. I'm so much more transformed by his love and his grace and his mercy, and I look so different than I used to in so many different ways. But I'm also more and more aware of my shortcomings. Crazy how that works. The more we come to know his spirit, the more we become aware of where we don't measure up. But the good news about the graciousness of God is he continues to transform us. So that, just like Paul, the line that was, like, they didn't know me, but they heard stories about me. But then they praised God because of who I had become. And so what might happen in your life and mine if we surrendered to the love of Jesus and we were shaped by him? What might happen if we begin to live our lives surrendered to him in such a way that he became what's primary? What if we live so radically different that we too, right? Maybe the first step for some of us is we shift from persecution, right? Maybe we're people who persecute Christians. Like we're like Paul. Maybe we're not trying to kill them, but we like make fun of them. Maybe that's the first shift. We just go from persecution to be like, hey, it's a good thing. People would be blown away, right? Like, that's a radical transformation. Or maybe for some, it's like when Paul goes off and spends these three years in Arabia. Maybe for us, it's like this recognition that some of the changes might be internal. And they're going to take a while to be seen. Because it's not like we're changing that much. Like, right, 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 we don't, at least on the outside. But on the inside, God's doing this work that we begin to be changed. And I started thinking about how people I know in my life who've had radical encounters with God are so radically different, right? We could, Matt and I were joking this week. I was trying to come up with a really good illustration. He's like, what about Chuck Swindoll? You know the guy, the Nixon guy, the Watergate? I was like, yeah, I've used that before. That's no good. I don't want to use that. But I started thinking, no, like, the truth is, radical transformation is sitting in this room right now. I've heard some of your stories. I've heard you tell me who you were before you encountered Jesus and the transformation he has made in your life. Like, what might happen if, if you and I lived in such a way that our old life became this new way of life for us? 
What might happen if we continue to walk into the grace and the love that God offers? What might happen if you and I had an encounter with the resurrected Jesus and it changed everything? What might happen if you and I left behind our previous way of life? What might happen if you and I embraced this idea that grace and peace are for us? That God desires to, for each of us to experience his undeserved generosity. What if? What if there really is a way we could come to know Jesus in such a way that we could have a previous life, that we used to be this person, we have become this person, and it's so much better? It's not that we look any different. It's not that we are better than anybody else, but what if we've been so radically transformed by God's love that we recognize how broken we were? Because Paul writes all kinds of crazy stuff where he says, like, I was the chief of sinners. He doesn't think he's better than anybody else, but he knows what it's like when he's experienced the grace of God, and he wants everyone else to experience that same grace. What might happen if you and I came to know the one who offers that grace and mercy that God has on offer for us, the life that leads to life? What if the broken things in our life could be restored? What if everything that's been so messed up could be made whole? What if that God desires through the resurrected Jesus to make you and I new so that we too could be people marked by Jesus in such a way that like Paul, we did have a previous way of life. But we've come to know the new life, or as Paul Wright Raider right later in 2 Corinthians 5, 17. I'm a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. And so today, if you want to be that new creation, if you want to walk into the life that leads to life, if you want to walk away from an old way of living, if you want to accept the grace of God, this undeserved generosity of God that says to you, do you know how much I love you that not even death itself can separate you from my love? Then this morning, in just a moment, we're going to invite you to come to the table it's a table we just call the Lord's Supper or Eucharist or Communion, whatever you want to call it. It's a moment in which we gather and we come and take the bread and, and someone will dip it in the cup and, and someone else will, dip, will say to you, the body and the blood of Christ, take and eat. It's this idea that we can receive from God his graciousness and symbolic act that he offers us. And I was thinking one of the cool things as I was looking this morning, I noticed that um, in the last service someone spilled some grape juice over here on on the step. I mean, like, I'm a little OCD. We'll clean it later. But, but I was noticing that grape juice. And, and this is kind of how God's grace works. Once you've experienced it fully and you've surrendered yourself to his love, it just kind of overflows. You never know where it's going to show up. You never know what's going to happen, where it just kind of permeates the spot. It may not even, you may thought, like, that's not even welcome there. But all of a sudden, it shows up and it works just great. This is what God's grace is like in our life. It's undeserved generosities that you and I can know that the overflow of God is ours. And what might happen in our communities if we so accepted the love and the grace of God that it overflowed wherever we went? It left a mark. And so today, if you've never decided to follow Jesus, as Paul said, he died to rescue us from our sins. He died to save us from this life. And help us to learn to live as if heaven is here on earth today. So this morning, if you know Jesus is Lord or you want to know him as Lord, we're going to invite you to come to the table. And you're going to come this morning on three sections. So here or here or here, you can come up any of the aisles. But you can come and receive the grace of God today. Because he has this undeserved generosity for you and for me. We pray with me this morning. Father, we thank you this morning for the way in which you invite us to come to know you. You invite us to come to your table to receive your grace and your love and your mercy that you extend on offer for us. 
So, Father, we ask that somehow you might help us to be the kind of people who have been defined by your love and grace and mercy. And maybe today we're wrestling with some previous ways of living, but may we find that you offer us forgiveness and hope, and you extend mercy so that our past does not have to define us any longer. But may we walk into new life with you. May we recognize there's a banquet we're invited into, a dinner in which we get to come, where all wrongs are made right, all that is broken is restored. And so, Father, help us to come to the table to receive your grace for us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.